Welcome to another episode of Wish I Knew, a podcast where I speak with people about their careers, focusing on their success, advice, mentoring, and listening to their interesting stories. I'm your host, Gary Nowak, and today I again had the great honor of connecting with a colleague from the past who I admired up close and from afar. In this episode, Mark Robinson gave me some great insights into his past and his career philosophy. A little bit about Mark's background. He's currently the president and CEO of Axion Medical. He's been a board member with Bottlenose and ESSI. He was an advisor to private equity and venture capitalists. I met him at Equiterra, where he spent eight years. He was also the founder of Morgan Chambers in the UK. Some highlights from our conversation. Hardworking family and the oldest of six kids. Power plant engineering degree. Extremely technical background out of college. Killed two sacred cows at once with his first marriage. Citigroup came calling early on. The drive for money. Learning outsourcing at the very beginning, in the late 80s actually. Gaining cultural experience early on as an independent contractor. Outworks everyone else. Loves the English language. Massive advice from his mom. Best advice, question everything. Secret to success, live in the gray. Speed in decision making. Get over yourself and always be yourself. Constant knocks on his door for opportunities seem to happen all the time with Mark. Choose your partners wisely and monitor the alliance. Contention unattended becomes conflict. I love that. Organic career choices with good decisions. Never selling his soul. And get this, he's a world-class Philly cheesesteak sandwich maker. Okay, okay, enough from me. Let me get out of your way so you can sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Mark Robinson. Mark, you're looking very sharp. Great to see you, and thank you so much for being on the podcast with me today. Really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. It's been way too long since we caught up. That's the beauty of this podcast. We are connecting and recording this, what I'm assuming is going to be a wonderful conversation. Or at least a challenging and demanding conversation, if I remember prior ones with you. Challenging for me, not for you. I can tell you that. Okay, very first question is, what was your very first job? I grew up in farm country. And my first kind of jobs weren't really jobs. They were just helping out on all my friends' farms. And in Wales, in North Wales. And then by, by the time I was 10, I had a job on a milk ground. It was delivering bottles of milk, glass bottles to the doorstep, riding on the back of a, a van, panel van that had the back cut off, right? So you were sitting on essentially a, a flatbed truck and hopping on and off with six or 12 milk bottles in little wire frames running up to the front door, taking the empties, leaving the full ones. So that was when I was 10. They started just weekdays at 5 a.m. just doing deliveries. And then after I finished with that, I had a paper round. And so by the time I was, I think, 12 or 13, I had two paper rounds. And I was also working the dairy at the weekends for the, the same farm that I did deliveries, doing basically bottle cleaning and machinery prep and all that kind of stuff. So when you were young, you were a very hardworking young man. Came from a hardworking family, parental influence. I was the oldest of six. My dad did what he could, but feeding six kids isn't that easy. Wasn't certainly that easy where I lived and when I was young. And so I gave every cent that I made to my mom as part of my contribution towards the home. 
And I did that with every job I ever had until I left home. Wow, that's pretty altruistic of you. I wonder what happened. Meaning, oh, yeah, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I like to think that's a character attribute that has sustained itself, but there may have been periods of my career where it was less evident than others. Well, having a first first row seat sometimes, I was like, hmm, this is a go-getter. I could tell you that. Boy, 5 a.m. for a 10-year-old that had the, oh, that's brutal. I didn't sleep anyway, so it really didn't matter. Yeah, and you were fit. You're running up and down. You got to stay. I'm sure time was of the essence. So anything you carried with you from all those jobs into your career? If you fall on your face, get up and carry the rest of the unbroken milk bottles to the doorstep and bring the rest back because the truck's not going to wait. Boy, there's a quotable. Don't worry about spilled milk. One time I actually, in the middle of the winter, I slipped and fell. I managed to sling the milk bottles out in front of me in their crate so they didn't break. But the side of my face hit the curb and I broke a tooth off. And my my dad's voice echoed in my head. It was like, shrug it off, son, shrug it off. So I spit the piece of tooth out into the <laughs> into the dirt and finished the finished the round and then emergency dentist visit later that day. That's where you must have that hardcore skills, holding those milk bottles up so they didn't break and using your face to to soften the blow. I've used my face to soften a lot of blows in over the years. <laughs> metaphorically, let's metaphorically. let's say metaphor. Okay. All right, good. So after your you're delivering papers, milk, you're giving all your money back to your family because that's just it. You've got five younger brothers and sisters. University, was that in the cards for you? Yeah, college. It was. Uh, I went to a community college and did a four-year degree at a community college that was recognized at the end of that period as a university degree. So engineering. Where, where was this? Salford. Salford. It's, now, it's now a part of Salford University. You say Salford like I should know that's in Wales? It's in Manchester, in the north of England. If you think about Coronation Street, right, and then you think about those soap operas with the grimy, red brick, smoky houses, and that is where I went to college. Sort of like Peaky Blinders, if you've managed to watch that. Yeah, but but 30 years later, but still smoky, yes. There you go. Okay, good visual. Well, you're a podcast pro. I don't know if you've done these before, but <laughs> you're giving everybody One a nice two. visual. One or two. You study engineering, community college. Power plant engineering, specifically dual electrical and mechanical engineering, everything connected with building and running power stations. Why did you choose that? It paid, to be honest. I was tired of not having any money at all, ever. And I had a sponsor for the for the course. And so I worked all of my all of the non-academic calendar year. I was working placed in power stations all around the country learning the the physical aspects of the craft, being abused by all those senior guys who were already there, as you always are, as you'll remember quite well. And I went, <laughs> and then in, in during term, I would be uh, like every other student, just studenting away. What do you remember about college? Not a lot. <laughs> well, there, there are bits that I remember. I I was reasonably gifted academically, so I didn't have to study terribly hard. And so I remember the kind of the week before exams at the end of every semester was a, was a, a cramming week. And the rest of the time was a big party for me. And, and that was back in the day. Back in the day, I, I used to consume alcohol, not since you've known me, but 
back in the day, I did. I like to tell people I consumed my lifetime's worth of alcohol by the time I was 35, and so I gave it up. Well, that liver, the liver is caught up to your age now, I imagine. It regenerates. Liver is one of the most phenomenal organs in the body. It's fully regenerative. In fact, you can cut livers up into four or five pieces, transplant them into four or five people, and they'll grow back into a liver. See there, this is an ed educational podcast on the human body, along with Mark Robinson's career. Excuse me for drinking my tea. It's a, a British habit I haven't given up. I'm drinking my tea. What did you do after university? Uh, I worked for the Central Electricity Generating Board, which was the nationalized entity that owned and operated all the power stations in the UK at the time. I worked first in their scientific services division, developing things like semi-autonomous robots to pull bent fuel rods out of nuclear reactors to save on downtime. And then subsequently, again, semi-autonomous semi robots that climbed up the the turbine intake tubes in a in a huge power station that was built on the ground in the middle of a mountain that could scan the welds on these tubes to make sure they still had weld integrity because if the if that piping failed the cavern with like 100 people in it would fill to the brim in 30 seconds and everybody would be dead so you know it was so i did that first then i worked in actual power stations for a little while as a a shift engineer sitting at a big control desk with all the, the decision-making about how you manage the plant. And then I did a little bit of design work around control systems. Control systems was something I was really interested in. It was the, if you like, the minor in my in my studies. And, and that, that was really interesting. And from there, I made my way to the headquarters of the organization in London into their IS department. We didn't call it that then. We called it the computer division or whatever. But and and I did things like I helped develop a program that simulated the pressures involved inside a nuclear reactor. It's, it's, it uses some math called finite element stress analysis, which is really interesting math. And so you you break up this great big metal ball and all of its pipe stubs that go in and out of it into little tiny polygonal segments. And then you model the behavior of each of those segments under heat and, and pressure stresses. And then you model nice things like if a 747 crashed out of the sky on top of this reactor, would it burst and that kind of stuff. So I did that for a while. It was interesting work. For a while? Probably a year. Okay. No, not, not long at all. This is your early 20s, yeah? Yeah, early 20s. And then I, I kind of capped out at, on the promotions I could get. It was a government-owned organization. There was time in grade required for advancement. I capped. I was going to have to spend four or five years before I got another promotion or another material pay rise. And a recruiter for Citicorp came calling. And I'm like, oh, that'd be interesting. So hold on, Citicorp is financial services, yeah? Yeah, but it's computing. It was a, this was a programmer analyst role initially. And I got to work on interesting things like attempting to build a, an automated Forex trading system, failing because the technology of the day wasn't fast enough to move at the speed of the market. But, but that was interesting. And then a really early credit scoring algorithm that was used for, for loan processing, not cards, but because... In the UK, back in the mid-80s, there were no cards. Nobody had a credit card, practically. But this was uh, loan processing. And you're in London right now, yeah? London, yeah. How do you like London? How'd you find it? 
It was very different. I grew up in Wales. I went to Manchester. By the time I got to London, it wasn't smoky anymore. They they cured that problem. It was a big city. It was exciting. I was young. Big cities are exciting when you're young. And capital cities are even more exciting than most others, except for DC, which is one of the most boring cities on the planet. But Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C., yeah, and, and Ottawa, of course. That's even more boring than Washington. But beyond that, oh, and I guess Canberra in Australia is pretty darn boring compared to the other options available, right? Any other country capital you want to tick off to get them pissed off at you, Mark? No, I kind of like Paris, and Paris is really fun and fun. Yeah, most other capitals I've been to actually have a lot going for them. Okay, good. But, but those three, no. Hong Kong, you're a fan, not a fan? Hong Kong wasn't really a capital. I did spend time in Hong Kong. I liked Hong Kong. That was right around the the two, three years before we handed it, we, the Brits at the time, handed it back to China at the end of the lease. Oh, yeah. That was interesting times. So what I've learned thus far, you're a hardworking young man, 10 years old, you're doing stuff. You're rural, small farming town, Wales, Manchester. That's pretty rural as well, right? That's not a big city. Manchester is grimy, industrial as heck, very large city. There's no rural, there's no rurality to Manchester. Good, good football club though. But then you get to London and things are pumping and you get to a job and there's a cat. You're like, okay, I can't sit in government for four or five years. So you go to to Citigroup. So you're at Citigroup building algorithms, a lot of that good stuff. So take me from there. Yeah, so I managed to get divorced, which was really inconvenient and very expensive. And I wasn't making as much money as I needed at City. And I had a bunch of suddenly very leverageable skills. Well, hang on. You just blew over you getting married. I assume oh, well, you... that's, that's ancient history. And, and Yet you want to bring up the divorce. You don't want to talk about the marriage. You'd rather talk about it. The best thing about the marriage was the divorce. <laughs> And this is 20. So you're, you're, you commit. You're I, I was committed. premature. I was, I was, I was it, it, if you want to know really stupid decisions and why we make them and how we regret them, my dad hated my girlfriend. And so I married her. Right. <laughs> and, and there was a, there was a racial animus element to my dad's hatred. My girlfriend at the time was Persian and my dad didn't approve at all and that kind of doubled down i was killing two sacred cows at once one i was spiting my dad and two i was fighting racism and way i went so worst decision that was that was actually probably the worst decision in my life okay so when you make bad decisions how do you know it and what do you do about it well in this particular case the my now ex and largely forgotten wife let me know that it was a bad decision continuously from very early in the in the relationship actually <laughs> so yeah i don't want to slander anybody so let's move on from this topic there we go okay so that didn't work out you're you commit you're in there i was okay, i get- was i was giving 100 hours a week to city which you had to do if you wanted to progress it, it was a very demanding work culture and I couldn't cope with a very demanding relationship and a very demanding work culture at the same time. And being young and relatively impoverished in relationship skills, as most of us are at that age, right? I, I decided to essentially run away from the relationship and max out the time I gave to work. And, and so it, it died. The relationship died. I am extremely grateful that it died in retrospect, but it was a it was a tough time. And so suddenly I need to make a lot more money because I have to pay not only for myself, but my ex. And 
I had acquired a bunch of very marketable skills because the financial services market in London in the second half of the 80s was going through massive transformation. And I forgot to mention that I'd gotten involved in outsourcing some IT development to India back in in the early Citicorp days there. Citicorp had a relationship with Tata Consulting, well, with Tata Industries. Tata just stood up this Tata Consulting entity, and, and they came knocking on the door saying, balance of trade, guys, we pay you hundreds of millions of dollars in fees every year. Buy this from us. So... We needed to we needed to build something at the time, and I, and I was involved not not central to it but peripheral to it. But I learned to understand outsourcing and the issues and challenges associated with it. And so, and this is this is cutting edge. This is right at the very beginning of outsource. It was. It was before before that. Back at at the university company, we had we had what were called computer bureau services because we had these huge mainframes that were only busy, really busy, busy when we were running a massive complex calculation. And the rest of the time they were ticking over with masses of capacity. So we actually leased capacity on these machines, which was pre-outsourcing in a way, the seeds of the of the idea of outsourcing. So so I'd, I'd had some continuous exposure to this from one career segment to the next. And the city in London, there were a lot of institutions looking to figure out how to do this outsourcing thing. And so I set myself up as an independent contractor and had the pleasure of a series of really great contracts with really with with big name companies that that gave me a reputation. So that takes a lot of confidence, skill to pull yourself out of Citigroup. You're busting your ass, right? It was desperation and ignorance, not confidence and skill, right? They, they say you know, anything goes when the devil drives. <laughs> so my overwhelming objective was to make more money. And I wasn't thinking in terms of career. I was thinking of, in terms of how can I leverage what I've already learned and move my earning power up to the next level, which in a way is career, right? Because earning power is an important at- attribute of career as you progress through it becomes maybe less important later on, but that's because it's a default and it's a given. So mo- most people, especially younger people, are, are pursuing income as well as uh, as well as career growth. So for me, this was, you know, it was hugely positive for me. I, I, I grew as an individual enormously. I was exposed to, over the course of four years, a dozen different microcultures, right? Which were very different from from like Robert Fleming, which was a a, a hundred and fifty year old merchant bank where everybody wore pinstripe suits and black ties, but black sorry black socks and white shirts and red ties, and all went to the same private school, and they they were they were it was an exclusive club, and decision making wasn't driven by data; it was driven by influence. From that to companies like the Prudential, who actually had a much more data-driven, much more consensus-oriented decision process, and and so on, right? And different places demanded either exceptional, crazy commitment in hours and effort, or other places just let you cruise. And what you made of it was what you made of it. So, so you said you went out to be an independent contractor. Silly question, but how did you know that existed? Oh, we, we employed some independent contractors at City, and I was familiar with the, it, it. It was the when when you factored in all the benefits you have to pay for for yourself and all the other stuff that the overheads of running a small 
limited company. The the people I became friendly with, I learned that they were about 30% better off than I was for the same value input that I provided. And so that was like 30% available right now. I'm going to take it. And I found, a, I found an accountant and I started a little no-name limited company just for myself. And I found a couple of agents who, this is... The whole computer contractor in the industry was relatively young then as well. There were some agents and there were also a few small magazines that featured contracts available where you could contract direct and all kinds of stuff. So I navigated my way through that and it was it was really interesting. And along the way, I found that the outsourcing skill was perhaps the most valuable skill that I had. Because you were on the forefront of it, you did it on a large early, scale. Early days. Yeah. Right. Here's what I think is funny with all this. I try to give you a compliment and tell you you're a go-getter and you have confidence to go out on your own. And you tell me, Gary, I just needed 30% more money. So let's be honest with each other. Yeah. There's there's an element of truth in what you said, but I, I'd say probably 80% of the truth is in what I said, right? And I've always, I, I was always relentlessly ambitious. I never was willing to concede a ceiling to what I could achieve. But you see this, this irony. When you're a kid, you're giving all your money to your parents. Then when you get on your own, you're chasing the dollar because it's all going into your pocket. Now you're giving some away to this lovely ex, ex-wife of yours. Yeah, and I had siblings who I was helping through college and a variety of other commitments. So. so one listening might say, oh, he's a greedy bastard. But hearing that, it's like, no, you made money and you gave it to other people. I mean, like, let's be clear. I'm, I'm, not a, I'm, not a, I'm not one of those people who places no value in money. But I mostly look on money as being valuable for what can be achieved with it rather than being valuable for in and of itself. I feel like I'm trying to portray you as a saint and you're kicking and screaming and fighting me all the way. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to do that <laughs> because I don't I don't think there are any saints. Right? I think we're all complex and we're, we're all nuanced and we all have positive and ne- negative attributes. And the path to wisdom is learning those things about yourself, which are perhaps not what you would ideally like to be. And then being comfortable and honest about those things, because they're as much part of you as anything else, right? And I I never trust anybody. I shouldn't ever use the word never. I should never say never. I rarely trust people who appear to be too good, right? Because I think what's under the surface, what's under the skin, who is that person really? I'm it's a mask that person's wearing at work. I, I don't have a deep contact basis to understand them. Therefore, how can I invest trust in them? So you're in your 20s. What are you learning about yourself while you're in your 20s? I can work harder than anybody else I ever met. That was a bigger attribute than anything else. Secondly, I had taken education seriously. I'd learned, right? So my, my communication skills were really high. I, I, I loved the English language and I was bilingual in English and Welsh. And I'd, I had competed in poetry contests in Wales and where you recite your poetry on a public stage. And it's a big deal. It's part of the historical culture of the country. And so I wasn't afraid of speaking my mind or writing my mind. And I could do it articulately and fluently. And I think those communication skills... And keep in mind, this is back in the day where you used a typewriter, right, for most of that kind of thing. And if you if you presented anything, it was on an overhead projector with 
often hand-drawn slides with uh, with colored pens like the the white like whiteboard pens so communication skills were really important and then my mom who was in many ways my role model at least from a ethical and moral standpoint and from an intellectual standpoint my mom had always encouraged me to understand that understanding people was the key to everything in life and the more that i could model inside my own mind i started running models of people in my head as i interacted with them i was observing in there's an element of detachment that you can have at the same time as being fully engaged if you ask any salesperson they'll be they'll tell you that they can they can i mean maybe it's a semi sociopathic skill i don't know but the ability to actually try to understand what's happening at the same time as being part of what's happening and so i i got better and better and better at understanding people and and speculating on motivation and then seeing that speculation either be proved or confounded kept on honing that skill and it enabled me to influence and as you know from your career influencing is perhaps the most important skill a consultant can have if you can't persuade people to adopt the solutions that you've been paid to design everybody's time and money was wasted and so i would say that that those communication skills and the eq component and eq eq is one of those complex words right there's two dimensions to it in my perspective there there is the dimension by which you deeply care about other people and then there is the dimension by which you deeply understand other people and i was way better at the understanding than i was at the caring at that stage in my life apart from friends and family where i've always been good at the caring part did it ever work so mom mom tells you so you're a great communicator you you love communication skills which i can attest to and your mom tells you understanding other people being able to communicate with other people reading other people so you have this this story in your head you're you're talking to somebody you're in the conversation but you're also looking at it from afar figuring out what's this person's motivation and you know do i care about them do i not care about do i care about them or do i understand them right more about understanding and then you take that and want to use it or leverage it or exactly and remember that this may sound absolutely incorrigible but i was very young i i would be i would be way less self-serving in that regard at this stage in my life i i've 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 i th- i think i've grown through it and passed it and and now i actually deeply care about all the people i come in contact with even those that i don't like so it's flipping initially career wise as understanding now like hey you know these are good human beings other traits that you're really good at throughout your career not just in your 20s that you recognize like huh i'm a logician right I, 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 I fully embraced logical thinking at an early age. All, all forms of logic, heuristic logic, classical logic. It enabled me to frame a, a, a frame a, a model of whatever I was looking at, and then test that model. Being an engineer, systems thinking is also a big component of of my my overall approach. So I, I'm a systemic logician. I'm also passionate. A passion isn't a skill, but I'm a passionate person as well. And then I'm a stoic, right? Vanity is not one of my weaknesses. Fortunately, thank God, as far as I know, nobody's ever accused me of being vain, which may be just because I intimidate the heck out of them if they're going to. I don't know. But the truth is I'm a stoic. And so I believe that this too shall pass, including my life. 
And a thousand years from now, nobody knows my name. Even if I did something absolutely amazing, unless I was one of like 25 people in the early 21st century of the United States, nobody's going to know my name. So it's all ephemeral. It's all transient, which kind of helps you not become too fond of yourself or think too highly of yourself. Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor, was a a founding Stoic, and his his memoirs are really great reading. And, and he was one of few Roman emperors who managed to be actually a human being rather than a monster. He was great in the movie, too. <laughs> Somebody may have portrayed him in the movie. I'm not sure. We're not going to go take Mr. Crow out to, out to the shed and let him know whether he did a good job or a bad job. Advice. So you got an advice from your mom. What's the best advice you've ever gotten? Question everything. My mom, my mom was a school teacher. Specifically, she was a remedial ed school teacher for kids who had learning difficulties. And I was her firstborn and I was her project. So by the time I was two, I could read, I could play chess, I could, I could do decent kind of arithmetical type math. Not because I was super bright, but because I had a super dedicated mom who didn't believe that kids of that age were too young to acquire those skills. And didn't didn't see it as not playing. It was playful learning. It was it was wonderful for me. So I started reading newspapers at an early age. And when my mom caught me reading the newspaper one time, she said, "You shouldn't believe anything you read." And I'm like, "Why not, mom?" And so mom starts telling me, first of all, what do you know about this person who wrote this article? Nothing, mom. And what do you know about the the biases of the publication that's that's publishing it, and the editors that changed the text on the person that wrote it. I don't know anything about that, Mom. And she she taught me to look for agendas and to be distrustful of data, unless I could account for the source and I could I could qualify the data based upon the biases inherent in it. And, and throughout my life, that question everything, take take absolutely nothing as a given, that's been really supremely valuable. You think about working as a consultant and you go into a company and they have all these established business processes and you're either looking to outsource them or transform them in some way or automate manual processes. And the company's people that you're working with almost always have these biases that say these processes are perfect. No, the, and, and they don't recognize either that the same problem has been solved a thousand other times in a thousand other places and that there are best practice imprints that can be applied. And so really going in and being able to question from first principles to understand how a practice arose or a process was designed and then take people through that reverse engineer it back to why the process and then so what pro what problem is it seeking to solve? And then go through the efficiency model of, well, how can we solve that most effectively and most efficiently? That whole consulting mindset, in my mind, is starts off with the don't take anything you hear on the first interview with all these people you're just meeting for the first time who you have to lead through a transition. Don't take anything as actually true. Just take it as a data point and then qualify it. A couple of a comment and a question. Sounds exhausting. Yeah. And the question is, how do you trust anything? When when does that when does somebody gain your well, trust? This is the other for me, this is a secret to success. Being able to live with ambivalence, right? You don't have to have black and white answers to most things, right? So if there's data that's unknowable or if there are elements of a problem that are intransigent, 
Live with that. As you progress, clarity emerges. Transparency is achieved. As an executive later in life, as an executive running businesses, I learned that I never have enough data. And the data that I have is always suspect, at least in one dimension or another. And some of the agendas behind the the requests or, or the framing of decisions that are presented to me by the people who are who need my consent or my input or my decision support, there's, there are agendas there that I'm not necessarily aware of. And so that degree of being comfortable living in the gray rather than needing binary clarity allows you to make decisions with speed. And speed is often more important. In fact, you could make two diametrically opposite decisions, one which was wrong, but you made it really quickly, and one which was right, but you took six months to get to. And almost always, it turns out that the one that was wrong, you're able to identify where it was faulty and course correct it to the point where you've gotten four of those six months, at least, of progress down the road. Whereas if you'd done the, gone it, about it the other way, you would have made no progress at all during that time. So be, being comfortable with ambiguity and comfortable in a an environment where data is suspect or where data is data points are missing or where even where there are external decisions that will impact your decision and they're not contiguous with your time frame. So for example, there's impending government legislation about topic X that could potentially transform how you have to solve for that problem. Do you wait for it? Knowing that when somebody says government legislation is imminent, imminent might be anything from next week to 10 years. Do you wait or do you act? Do you build the best you can today, understanding and knowing that that will have to be modified or do you hold back? And you, you go out, you get as many data points as you can. You live in the gray sometimes and you make decisions, put all that together. What advice do you give most to people? Get over yourself. <laughs> depending on how, depending on how, what the framework is, I mentor quite a lot of people. And the younger people that I mentor are, are really, they're really kind of uptight, right? Because they're insecure, typically. They're insecure in who they are and what their potential is and where they're going to go and all kinds of things. And those are just the work insecurities. There's all the personal insecurities that we all carry with us. And I think being so fixated on yourself gets in your own way. And get over yourself. Put put all that stuff aside. It doesn't matter. All the people you think are looking at you and judging you, they aren't. They, they don't know you from Adam. They don't care. If you want to wear a polka dot suit to a business meeting, wear a polka dot suit to a business meeting. You'd be amazed, actually. I, I, I ditched suits, like... 15 years ago. I, I just don't wear them. I don't wear ties. I wear clothes like this. Or if it's the summer and I'm, I feel that way, I wear beachy kind of light pink hoodies and shorts. And, and it opens doors. It enables communication. It's a more honest representation of who you are. And I think being comfortable in your own skin and being honest about who you are and not hiding behind layers of, of social convention actually get you much further. And even if they don't, you're not as stressed. You're not as, you're not as wound up. You're not pretending to be something else. One of the, I love mentoring and I want to 
understand how you've been mentored, but you said, get over yourself. What I like to promote to people, just be yourself. Always, always, always be yourself, whoever that is. It doesn't matter because then if they like you, they really like you because you're yourself. If they don't, then you move on. And liking isn't necessary. Respect is necessary, right? You can respect the capabilities of a person who you have no basis on this earth to like, as long as they're not Im an immoral person, a, a bad person, you don't have to like them. And, and that's part of getting over yourself too. If, you're, if your standard is, I'm only going to work with people I like, then you're, you are very self-limiting in that regard. How have mentors molded or impacted your career? That's an interesting question, both positively and negatively, in fact. I think we, we like to think that we can choose mentors, and some of us at some points in our career can do that. In my case, though, the people who've mentored me have just shown up, right? They've been a byproduct of my, of my career path, where I go somewhere, identify somebody I admire or find have skills or, or networks or other attributes that I want to understand and engage with. And I get value out of interacting with them. And I model some attributes of, of how I behave from that point forward on the behaviors that were exhibited to me. So, you know, the guy who ran the dairy farm, Ed Hooson, this is a very long time ago. He, I, he probably said 10 words a week, but he could communicate volumes with a rolled eye or, or a kind of a stern look. He had, he, he was a man who had, absolutely knew who he was, didn't care who you were. And, and at the same time, you wanted his approval because it wasn't easily gained. It was withheld. I, I learned from that that sometimes saying nothing is a more powerful thing to do than saying something. We move on. I had a couple of profs I liked, liked at college who I admired not because of the content of their subject matter, but because of the spirit of inquiry that they brought to, the, to their approach to everything. And the way they taught learning, which was driven out of critical thinking rather than driven out of, of memorization and, and tabulation. I love critical thinking. I think it's a really important skill. So let me ask you this. How do you define critical thinking? Critical thinking includes elements of logic, elements of separating emotion from analysis. The, the advice my mom gave me, don't trust anything. Read an opinion poll and ask yourself, well, who asked the question? How was the question phrased? Was the design of the question inherently going to lead to a subset of answers? What methodology was used in weighting the participants? How many participants were there and are they a representative sample? And for me, that's all of that is part of critical thinking, right? It's it's great things down to fundamentals. If you're thinking about history, it's don't believe historians. Go read the source documents. Read them for yourself, right? Example that's got a lot of currency today, the, the federal period, the, the founding of the, this nation. I love America. I'm a, a naturalized American citizen. It's one of my proudest achievements. So you look at the founding period and you hear multiple different narratives from different historians, the, the classical narrative, the revisionist narrative, right? And you go and that, read actually the documents and you get a sense for who those people really were. You, you hear their voice, right? You understand the flaws in the individual, but you can separate the individual's work from their flaws. 
It, the same is true for a wide variety of cultural icons. You think about someone like Graham Greene, a really famous novelist in the 50s and, and become part of classical literature who had a series of really obnoxious personality traits, in, including a degree of inappropriate relationship with his with his daughter. And you think about that and you think, oh, God, I hate that. But But the work is stellar. And separating out that the, that cultural contribution from the nature of the person who made it, all of this, it's all part of the big picture, right? It's like, question everything, understand all the components, discard those that aren't relevant, focus in on what matters, and then move the ball forward once it's in your hands. There you go. Very succinct definition of critical thinking. My, my prof that taught it to me would absolutely hate that definition. No, I didn't mind it. I liked everything about it. Remove emotion, logic, figure out everybody's motivation. Why are they writing that? What's their bias? What's their not bias? It's, uh, yeah, it's pretty heavy, I would say. Um, Especially in, in current times when everything seems so polarized and excessive bias informs all media today. Is hor- it's it's hopeless, hopelessly corrupt. The concept of journalism is report the facts. And what we see now is the injection of the journalist's opinion, or even worse, the injection of the journalists themselves as a participant. For me, that's not journalism, that's activism, right? If you want to say I'm an activist who writes, say you're an activist who writes, don't say you're a journalist. And that's across the entire political spectrum, by the way. I'm a libertarian. I don't have, there's nobody who represents me. So on either side of that spectrum. But do you think it's going to whip around? I don't know if I'll live that long, Gary. I don't either. I'll be 62 at my next birthday, and I've been waiting for at least half a century for libertarian thinking, which is some of, in my opinion, the best kind of thinking you can do about social modeling and all that kind of stuff. I've been waiting for it to gain traction, and it hasn't. It's too bad this podcast is just audio, because 62, I can tell you, Mark, Looks like you're going to be 42, just for the record. So, Well, thank uh, you. You're welcome. Thank you. I love you too. That is my form of saying love, something that's so sarcastically nice that people want to believe it. <laughs> Sarcasm is a tool which, likely used, can actually move the needle. You shouldn't avoid sarcasm. You should, you should be, it should be a light touch, and it shouldn't be your go-to model. And even the, even the cousin of sarcasm, snark, a little snark goes a long way, used judiciously in the right context and presented with humility and humor and leavened with self-deprecation. Snark is a great, a great communicating tool. Amen, brother. You're talking my language now, finally, after all these years, because all this other stuff about a plane going into something, I, I know it was English. But I'm going to have to re-listen to it because I don't know exactly what you were saying about all that. All that. You know what I found about engineers? Because I've interviewed quite a few engineers. They can be very great consultants. And I'm always taken aback or shocked that an engineer can be a consultant. But if you can take that analytical mind that great engineers have of the way to think about things and also incorporate that in communication with other people and put that together... I tell you, some of the best engineers, I've interviewed some. I think a good friend of ours, Mr. Cecil, he's a he's an engineer by background. and Yeah, he's a nuclear engineer, actually. Yeah, 
Purdue and Michigan. So he's got that going for him. I didn't ask, where are you now? Where do you reside in the U.S.? So I, I split my time between Eureka, Montana, which is up in the northwest corner of Montana near the Canadian border, where I happen to be right now. And I'm surrounded by mountains and forests and wild animals and lakes and rivers and relatively few people. And I enjoy that. A degree of isolation is good for the soul. I'm not that I'm isolated, but my nearest town is a thousand people and it's 10 miles away. And and if you go in some directions, you can go 50 to a hundred miles and not cross a road and not see a human. So I, I like that. And then the, what's the, the other... address? So I can just put that no, in the show no, notes. No, no, what do you mean? Sorry. Just, I mean, it's just you no. and me talking because I'll yeah, come visit. Right. Yeah. Okay. Seriously. If you think there's more than just you and me, I got news for you. I know there's at least five other people that will listen to this. A handful. Yeah. And they're probably all your relatives. And a lot of our Equiterra colleagues will. Maybe. Once I post this, it'll go. It's going to make you famous, Mark. Guaranteed. Awesome. (laughs) So Eureka, Montana and the other half. Fredericksburg, Texas. In Hill Country near Austin. Very nice. And splitting the time means winter, summer? No, it means on a whim and and as as work and life commitments permit like for example it's been 100 degrees for the last 8 weeks in Fredericksburg there is nothing nice about that and we haven't had a day that's much over 90 here and most days are in the 80s or even 70s and it's much more livable at this time of year there we go okay we got to get back on track because we left off in your 20s. Kind of take me from there. And it's not like we need to drain the rest of your career, because I think all this other stuff has been just as insightful. And it's what I'm most interested in, really. But walk me through, because you're a pretty high profile individual. So I, I went from an individual contractor in the, working in the city for financial firms who were trying to outsource various things. I went to be an independent contractor for a company that outsourced things, that provided the services. And what, one of the things I didn't mention, by the way, is that during this period working in the city, it wasn't just technology that that I was involved with outsourcing. I was involved with check processing and clearing, messaging services, all, all kinds of, mostly, how's the best way to put this? They were back office processes, but they were mostly unique to the industry. So it wasn't things like HR, F&A, legal procurement. It was fundamental actions of the business that took place in the back office. So I went to to contract for another company that was a early days startup. But when I say a startup, it had been a spin out from a different company. And they were mostly focused on technology and they were bidding on outsourcing opportunities. And they had a, a nascent public services division that was bidding on the the UK's huge outsourcing program for government owned and operated services. And I basically found myself in the role of the, the sales engineer for many of these proposals, the person who could translate the RFP into what does that actually mean, into what does our resource plan look like, into how can we, where can we find efficiencies, where can we drive cost savings, where can we push automation so that we can put in a compelling bid. And over the course of about two and a half years, I was instrumental in several very large, very high profile outsourcing successes. And for me, that that made that suddenly made me very valuable 
as an individual. And there were a lot of people knocking on my door. And what I what I did then was start with a partner instead of a, a an individual consulting LLC. He and I started a company called Morgan Chambers, which you may remind, remember later on Equiterra acquired where we both worked at the time. So Robert and I started a company called Morgan Chambers. And our, our MO was we will consult with anybody who has anything that they need done with outsourcing, whether you're a vendor, whether you're a, a buyer, whether you are wanting training, we wanted to be the one-stop shop. And we, we grew that company over time to, to operating throughout Europe. It was the European thought leader and, and market leader in, in outsourcing. And then Robert and I found out that we didn't actually agree with each other terribly well on what should happen next. And I agreed to separate from that company. I retained my holding in it, but most of my holding in it, but I separated from the company and went in a different direction, which leads me to a really important piece of advice. If you're going to have partners, choose them well, and then constantly monitor the state of your alliance with those partners because unmonitored it can drift right and when when alliances begin to fail people begin to behave in unpredictable ways and suddenly you discover something happening that is not what you expected to happen so caution right choose your partners well this is both for business and in life. Oh, yeah. Well, obviously true for that. We're probably not going to revisit my personal life at this stage. But... I just need to make a joke. But the business side, what's your what's your recommendation to constantly monitor that? Even you could be partners in a company or you could be working for a company. I think, first of all, you have to establish a standard of honesty and transparency. You, you, I don't think you can have a functional partnership, especially in a startup, especially in a, a high growth business. I don't think you can have a functional partnership unless nothing's out of bounds. Everything can be discussed and must be discussed. If you have a moment of discomfort, you have to transparently work through it, not walk away from it. You can't avoid contention because contention untended becomes conflict. And whether you see the conflict or whether the conflict is subsumed in behind the scenes and and festers and leads to ultimately a divergent view of what's next. That That's what you have to focus on, I think, is that degree of transparency. A business partnership is, in many ways, no different than a marriage. You probably spend more hours with business partners than you do with spouses. You probably have at least not emotionally as much at stake, but you have, a you in terms of your financial future, you're committing a financial future in the same way that you do to a spouse. And, and, and marriages work when people talk transparently and address the issues and recognize that some days it's joy and some days it's work, right? And don't shy away from the work. I, I really think that those learnings about marriage, which, by the way, I had to fail twice at before I found a path forward that was much smarter than, than I realized I was at the time. You practice what you preach. Try. You try. The other thing is, if you think a partnership's failing, take action either to separate or to correct. But do not, do not just let time and and inevitability dictate what happens to you. Take control. 
Morgan Chambers, huge success in Europe. And I, I came over to the US in this time frame in the, the late 90s, well, mid 90s, 95, 96, to open up some, some work in the US for that company. I was the CEO at the time. This felt like a really important venture. Here I come. Silicon Valley, wonderful place. Amazing place. Brain confounding, popping place. Did some really interesting work. Ended up, as I said, separating from Morgan Chambers. I wanted to stay in the US and my visa to be here was dependent upon my employment. And so I decided I was going to invest a chunk of money and acquire a visa through Inwards Investment, which I did. And I was just burned out on outsourcing. So I started an ad agency, a full service ad agency. This was in an era where uh, the whole agency business was disintermediating. You were getting all these kind of vast monolithic advertising agencies that the smaller business couldn't afford to, to, to leverage. And weren't, they weren't interested in working with you. So I here I am. I'm living in Beverly Hills in California, right at the heart of entertainment and fashion. The other heart is New York City, but there was a big heart for that stuff in Los Angeles area. And the, the 2000.com crash happened right around when I opened my doors. And that was beneficial and, and not beneficial at the same time. So beneficial in that I happened to be focused on entertainment and fashion. And they can't stop advertising. They can't, they have new product on a seasonal basis for fashion. In some, some ways of looking at it, there are six fashion seasons in a year. And then... For entertainers, it's new products. It's a continuous flow of new products. What got you into this? So I'm hearing engineering, outsourcing, and now I'm hearing ad agency. All the rest of my family are creatives. And I'm and and actually I find I think consulting is a creative process. I think business is ultimately creative. And having gone through a whole series of startups, being a startup didn't didn't worry me. But 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 really I so I did this and I did it for fun for me. It was paying myself back some. And I I reinvented myself as an art director and had tremendous fun for like 3 3 years of of like really learning, enjoying being good at it, which was a complete not a surprise. I had the chutzpah to sell myself as capable of something that I didn't know I was capable of doing and then show up and just start doing it. And it worked. So how much of that was your accent and your business acumen? Being an Englishman in America, or in my case, a Welshman in America, certainly has had its positives. People assume you're smarter just because of the accent, right? 100%. And people want to buy into it. So it hasn't helped me for the last decade, let me say. But up till that point, it was useful. But some of it was, yeah, I, I actually turned out to have some talent. I turned out to have an eye. I turned out to have an ear. I could I could communicate. This is visual communication is no different from written communication when you break down the fundamentals of how your eyes and your brain process visual information. And I took the time to learn about all of that. So I could I could actually pay attention to it and, and, under, and understand it. And it was a differentiator. And that feels like the engineering part of you. You're breaking something down. It's systemic. And I did that for three years. But to be honest, it wasn't intellectually deeply rewarding. It was spiritually rewarding. It was, like I said, it was great fun. It was fulfilling in many ways. But, but I felt like my brain was stagnating a bit. And then Mark Toon showed up in my life. And there was this little company called Equiterra, and there were 
it was five people, right? It was two founding partners and three, three new partners. And I was like, I was number six. And it was, it was outsourcing all over again. And it was something I really deeply knew. But, but the guys who had started that, they, they, had, they had big balls. They had big ambition. And a great network, Mark Hodges' network is an unparalleled network. He had somebody who could open the door. You had people who actually knew that what they were doing. You had somebody who could sell without actually having to have any substance inside it. And, and so the, it was exciting. And they invited me to be part of that. And the next eight years were really a great eight years, transformative eight years. Some of the best clients I've ever worked with, some of the most challenging projects I've ever been part of, some of the hardest work I've ever done, some of the best people I ever got to meet and work with. So when was the split? Well, Equiterra was sold to KPMG. I didn't want to be part of KPMG for reasons that are probably obvious to you. It, it, organizationally, those large firms don't, don't do well with iconoclasts. And I'm something of an iconoclast. So. See, here's what I think. I, I mentored a young man and he's in consulting and he's a bit of a free spirit. And he's not afraid to speak his mind. He's got some life experience. And I said, you know what? You could be a great partner within that organization if you be yourself and maintain and be true to yourself because you could have been great at KPMG. I'm not going to I'm not going to slander KPMG, but organizations with 40,000 plus employees have vast layers of bureaucracy and are more characterized by inertia than momentum. And if you're if you're a natural change agent is really hard as an individual coming in mid-career to an organization like that to move the needle. And I didn't want to spend my time doing that. And I had done well enough in life at that time that I, I actually contemplated retirement. I was, I was planning to go to Costa Rica, fish for a year, and then figure out what the rest of my life was. So what did you do after that then? Well, a, a private equity guy came and knocked on my door. This is See, I, I don't want to convey the idea that I personally went shopping for carefully selected career opportunities. I did, I did put some attention into curating the opportunities that came my way. I did turn down more than I accepted. I, I think I made reasonably good decisions in hindsight about all of those that I accepted. Although probably I, if I'd known what I then what I knew now to reflect the title of your podcast, a couple of those decisions might have been different. They all took me to the place where I am. And, and so a private equity came, guy came and knocked on the door and said, hey, we just bought this company and... It's really interesting, and it's a business process outsourcing company. It does revenue cycle management for hospitals. And we're looking for a CEO. We'd like you to consider it. And I thought I was being offered a job. And what I was being offered was a highly competitive selection process. And, and I'm a highly competitive guy. And once I listened to this gentleman, this private equity gentleman, who has been, by the way, one of the greatest mentors I've had in my life, and who is also one of the five smartest people I've ever met. Once I'd listened to him and had a couple of two-hour conversations, I was hooked. And I thought, I, I, I really think I was born to do this. So I competed. I won the job. It was, a, it was an amazing job. I was There was no way I was adequate to that job when I walked through that door for the first time. But I think I brought a degree of humility to it and a degree of honesty and transparency and a cultural set of values that were all about integrity and truth and the value of having a high ethical standard, which 
again, if we think about my life, that has been a, a continuous element of my character and the way of, because my mom, again, my mom transplanted those values into me at an infant stage in life. And it's really hard to leave that stuff behind. You're imprinted, you're programmed. And then why would you, why would you change it? And you've seen success. So I was successful in that role. Ultimately, it was a massively successful exit. And again, I, I considered retirement. I, I wasn't quite ready. I did some consulting for KPMG, amongst others, some break-fix type stuff on some of the investment portfolio companies and got to work with people I already knew and new people. And it was interesting. And after, after several years of intense engagement in a in a single company in a single role and leadership role it was refreshing to have shorter cycle engagements with a definitive beginning middle and end and then and again i thought i was going to retire again and it would have been a, a more luxurious retirement this time than it would have been the other time and so i started planning that costa rica trip again again i was approached by somebody from my past who had been an audit senior delivering audit services to the company I ran. And he had he'd rolled up as CFO in a new company and the company needed a CEO. And he asked me to consider it. So I went, met with him, met with the senior team. And, and it felt like a, an interesting fit and a place where I could give back, which was a really big part of this. It was a place where I could mentor a whole executive team, all of whom were a minimum of 20 years younger than me at, at the time when I joined. I brought a couple of slightly older people in since, but so I could help those people. And most of them were homegrown. So they hadn't exposure to broader the broader business world, except through selling into it or delivering services into it. And and I thought the 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 mission of the business, which is to help workers in the workplace with with health challenges, injuries illnesses, etc. The mission was really compelling. It's a it's a really feel-good, do-good mission. And it and it's like a trifecta of feel good, do good, because it gives you the opportunity to do good, good for the employee who your is your your consumer of service, do good for the employer who has financial and social benefits from investing in this in these solutions, and good for the the team and investors in the in the business itself, right? So it's like a trifecta of of good, and I, I like trifectas of good. They they make me feel good, and they make me feel that I'm spending lifespan on something valuable. And as you get older, you're more conscious of what lifespan you have, and you, you're also more conscious of the fact that well, next time this the clock ticks over. I might not have the choice but to retire. It may be that the marketplace doesn't value me anymore, or it may be that I don't have the energy and interest. And so I, I viewed this as a potentially final CEO gig when I joined the company six years ago. I've been there six years, two and a half years in, I, six and a half years, two and a half years in, I brought in the same private equity people that had brought me into a deal. I brought them into my deal. We bought out the prior owners. We're now four years post-investment, and it has been a, a really compelling and successful adventure. And the last two and a half years have been perhaps some of the most challenging and most amazing of my entire business life. So a couple of final questions before we get into the fun stuff. What are you most proud of? I've never sold my soul. I have stayed true to myself. There are times when I've conformed a little bit, 
right? If you have to wear a suit, you have to wear a suit until you get until you become one of the big dogs and you can be who you are without concern. When you're running in the pack, you have to look like the pack. But but that degree of, of conformity didn't involve selling my soul. I've been put in places many times where the easy path would have been to do something that I, I personally would regard as corrupt. In consulting, having a client, in, an individual in the client tell you to change your report, your analysis, your numbers, your recommendations to suit their political objectives. Some people go along with that. Some people do that. Some people would say that's what successful consultants do. I would walk away from it. Not only that, I wouldn't just walk away from it. I'd scream about it and did actually. And you probably know some of those people that that some of those clients that that happened with. So I've never sold my soul. And I think I'm really proud of that. I'm really proud that I, I have a strong focus on giving back and on the social value that I create through my interactions with professional interactions with people. I've made a lot of people wealthy through entrepreneurialism, right? I was Many years ago, I was inspired by Bill Gates, who was once asked in the early days, the relatively early days, the kind of mid-90s, who was asked what he was most proud of. And he said, hey, Microsoft has made over 200 millionaires. And, I'm, and that was when a million dollars was something, right? It wasn't just pocket change. And, th and that really resonated with me because he went on to talk about how, how many lives that changed and how many seeds that planted of people who were now enabled to do to take risks, to do things differently than they'd done before. And the diaspora of those people from Microsoft into startups. And he was just so proud of this ecosystem. Now, I'm no Bill Gates, right? I have not created 200 millionaires, but I have absolutely helped a quite large number of people to become much wealthier and to become much freer. So I think those, those two things, from a professional standpoint, I'm most proud of. Well done. Final question. What was your best career decision? It was probably to take that private equity gig. It was, a, it was a bit of a right turn from being a founder, entrepreneur, partner in organizations. Since I was 26, I had never actually worked for anybody since I left City. And, and this was a change. I was now going to be accountable to owners who or, or investors. And obviously, I became a co-investor, so that helped. But, but it's still you are beholden to the people who put the money into the enterprise. And and I voluntarily went that way. And had I a do-over, I would probably have gone that road 10 years earlier because I think my ability to impact was amplified by it. Just wondering if you'd have been ready for it 10 years earlier. Who knows? That's why those what would you have done differently questions are such gotchas, right? I'd like to think I wouldn't have been less ready than I was. And I wasn't ready. If you follow the stoicism, it happened because it was the right time and the right place. It was just it was the right everything. That's the way you look at it. That's a bit more fatalistic. <laughs> the stoic would say, regardless of whether I would have chosen this time and this place, I will rise to the challenge to the best of my ability. There you go, Marcus. Well done. Time for some fun stuff questions. Oof, finally. Okay. I slogged through this. I just, I just hope you <laughs> deeply appreciate the massive investment of time. Oh, I'm counting every minute. And I know it's costing me because you're the only guest that wanted to be paid. So it's like, okay. Oh. <laughs> hey, if I had asked for a paycheck, it would have gone to charity. <laughs> Favorite movie or book? 
There's a couple of movies, and they're, and they're shallow movies, right? It's a mad, 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 mad world, one of my favorite movies. And then Independence Day. And one of the reasons why Independence Day, it, there's a few iconic moments in, in, in Independence Day, but one of them was the, the first kind of THX soundtrack. And, and I had, I knew this movie was coming out and I went out and bought all the kind of surround sound stuff. And then there's this scene with the spacecraft in the hangar. And when the spacecraft powers up, this Coke can that's on the, the, the spacecraft wing shoots all around the room, pings around the room. And I was sitting there in my, in my perfectly positioned chair in front of this perfectly positioned, what I thought of as a big screen back in the day, which was like probably 35 inches back projection TV. But, and, and I heard that can move around the room all around me. And, and I just thought this is a transformational experience for movies. And I also at that point understood exactly how important sound was to the, the, the entire sub immersive experience that you can get from a great movie. Midnight Express, that was the movie about the guy who gets imprisoned in Turkey. You're saying that you're looking for a lifeline for me. And I, don't, I, I don't know. I think it's called Midnight Express, right? It's a movie set in Turkey where this American is imprisoned for smuggling drugs. And it's, it's the prison story and then the escape story. I think it was called Midnight, Midnight Express. Favorite meal is what? I cook. It is my, it's, it's my, if I have a real hobby outside of work, it is, and outside of learning, because I believe in lifelong learning, it is fishing and cooking. And so I love to cook, and most of the things I cook, I love to eat, which is why I could lose some weight. What are you most proud of that you cook? I'm a great a Persian food cook, which comes from my first wife, but it's, it, it's, a, it, it's one of a very small number of legacies from that period of my life that's really valuable. I'm a great short order cook. Breakfast, I make a world-class Philly cheesesteak sandwich, like literally world-class, like I would happily compete in Philly cheesesteak sandwich contests with it. And and of course, there's all the sophisticated Gordon Ramsay type stuff, but but it's those, it's those deeply comforting foods that I actually am most proud of being able to put in front of somebody who can't get up after the meal because they couldn't stop eating. That's it. What's your favorite vacation spot? It has varied over the years. Currently, probably Florida because of the fishing. Any city? Isla Morada is the game fishing capital of the world. But I'm actually contemplating picking up a condo down in, in Arizona. Oh, nice. Our friend, Mr. Walker, isn't he a big game fisher? He does it differently than I do. He, he, do, he does the... 10-day fishing trips down to the Argentinian coast. I do the, his boat and his me, and there's maybe a captain and a mate to help me out, and I go catch big fish. Any music concert with any artist, past or present, who do you want to see? Music's been a huge part of my life, and I've seen so many legendary people. And who do I have left? I, and by the way, as we age for all of us, some part of the contemporary music scene begins to escape us. So music and contemporary music and I began to part direction in the kind of early hip hop era. And, and But I like Americana, contemporary Americana. It's, I just, hip hop, I don't have the cultural references to really get, consume knowledgeably and enjoy. If I, if I could see a concert again, it would be Queen. 
I saw Queen, I think, 13 times. Freddie Mercury was the greatest entertainer that I've ever seen, period. I saw David Bowie multiple times. That was fantastic. I never saw Led Zeppelin. I'd love to be able to have seen Led Zeppelin. But I don't want you to think I'm all hard rock, right? Nina Simone. I saw Nina Simone, and that was sublime. I used to go to a jazz club in London called Ronnie Scott's. And so everybody in the jazz world played Ronnie Scott's. So I, I saw... Everybody who wasn't dead at whatever year I happened to be living in London during that whole period, I saw everybody. So yeah, and then people still alive and still producing what I think is exceptional music. Elvis Costello is a, is a hugely intellectual musician, unusually lyrically as well as musically intensely interesting work. I love I love I ask you the favorite. I got a dozen and an apology that you don't follow current American like Lizzo. I expected you to say Liz I love Lizzo. But anyway, what did you want to be when you were forgive, growing forgive up? Forgive me, Gary, but you're at least 10 years younger than me. And so your ability to stay connected to the contemporary and, and you're 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 way cooler than I am. Trust so me. Your ability I'm, to stay con connected to the contemporary scene is is I don't uh, know why I'm, inevitably I'm, way greater than mine. I don't know why my voice went up like five octaves, but uh, no, that's not true. I'm not, I'm not too contemporary. I try to be. What did you want to be when you were growing up? Oh, well, I was a child of the space age, the golden age space age. So I wanted to be an astronaut until I was about 11 or 12. Apollo 13 made me change my mind. Those guys not almost not making it home. That was, that wasn't, didn't feel great. And then I wanted to be prime minister until I realized that politics is the most corrupt thing on earth. And I was constitutionally incapable of it. And then I wanted to be an engineer because my heroes were engineers. I mean, we think of Edison, for example, as a, a, as a scientist, but he was an engineer. Alexander Graham Bell was an engineer. They didn't, they, didn't, they didn't do fundamental scientific research. They applied scientific theory to create transformational machines for people's use. So yeah, I, I wanted to be an engineer. Well, and you did. Okay, rapid fiery type questions. Fast food restaurant go-to is what? Don't do much fast food. Okay, a guilty pleasure on fast food. Like, oh, you had to do one. If I had to do one, you really, you're really stretching me. It would probably be anybody's fried chicken. I like Church's fried chicken, particularly in Texas. Church's is a, they produce really good fried chicken. Favorite pizza? Yeah, my wife and I deeply disagree on this. She is a New York Italian American. And her view is that pizza should have cheese, tomato sauce, and if you absolutely have to have pepperoni. My view is that the more things you can pile on a pizza, the more interesting it is. I used to like a California Pizza Kitchen pizza that had sliced pear, arugula, and blue cheese. That was phenomenal. But mostly mostly if I buy outside pizza, it is, it's the, the all the meats type pizzas. Okay. You got me on that. This arugula and ugh, that's bullshit. Favorite TV show is what? Currently or? or all time. Or all time. Gosh. MasterChef. Okay. It's your second love. Do you have a favorite podcast? No. Favorite type of food? No. Jesus. Karaoke singer. Yes or no? Yeah. I have sung karaoke in Tokyo when it was required of me. I, I'm, I can actually sing reasonably okay. It's a genetic thing being Welsh. We can all sing, but, but I'm not, I don't generally do karaoke. It's not, it's, it's not my release. You're a reluctant karaoke singer if you get... Okay, that's fair. And I usually sing Elvis songs when I have to. 
Okay. I like that. Okay. So when you were drinking, what was your go-to alcoholic beverage? When I lived in the UK, it was beer because we had real beer in the UK. Gosh darn right. When I moved here, it became bourbon and it was Maker's Mark was my everyday bourbon. Two good choices. Just to be clear, that is 23 years ago. Okay. Or 24, I can't remember. Well, no, I don't do math on this podcast. What was your first car? A Renault 18, which I, it was blue, but it, when you say it and my, my first car with a, 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 a young man who was my neighbor in my first apartment that I paid rent on myself, not roommate, but neighbor next door, we went and bought two scrapped Renault 18s from the scrapyard and assembled one notionally roadworthy vehicle. From the two? From the two. Yeah. Do you have a dream car? I've had most of them. What was your favorite? What would I today, if I were to, if I indulged in a stupid car today, it would be the Aston Martin DBX, the Aston Martin SUV, small SUV. Good answer. It's amazing vehicle. Any broken bones? Yeah, many. Okay. Any tattoos? I have one. When, when I entered into my final marriage, as a token of the degree of commitment that I have, <laughs> I had a Celtic knot tattooed on my arm, an eternity triangle. And that was that was an indication that this is going to be your last one. Yeah, but it's an eternity symbol. It's 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 a triangle where all the sides and ends all cross over each other, and it's a single line, but but it's an impossible line. But couldn't that apply to your first marriage as well? No, no, I didn't understand eternity then, and now you do. Well, I began to understand it, like the words of the meatloaf song. I began to understand it after after it was too late to get out of it easily. On the dashboard light or whatever the That's hell it is. <laughs> now I'm praying for the end of time. I, I should have added meatloaf to my list of great artists. I saw meatloaf many times. Do you have a celebrity crush? No. Safe answer for you. I've had in the past, but don't no, no longer have celebrity you, crush. You've outgrown that. Yeah. I have. Good for you. Do people say you look like anybody famous? At various points in my life, I've been told I look like Elton John. Really? I hate that. I don't think I do. That's one of the reasons I have a beard, right? Elton John's really the one that I've been told most. I, I don't think it's true. I've never seen it, but it's happened multiple times from different people. So No. And between now and release, I'll think of who I think it is because I think you look like somebody, but it's not hitting me. The way you look right now at the hair and all that. Thank God you have your hair. It looks good. All right. Final couple of questions. Dinner with anybody past or present, who might that be? Who would be the most interesting person to eat with? Today, I would probably choose Elon Musk. Tweet that out. See what happens. A whole bunch of reasons. And it's not because he's rich. It's because I think he is one of the most misunderstood individuals currently active at a high level in, in, in our world today. He, he is ultimately altruistic in many ways. The whole people on Mars thing is driven by his perspective that life on Earth could be wiped out by a meteor. And if we want to survive as a species, we need to become multiplanetary. And so let me help us get there. The electric car thing was driven by we need to do something serious about solving our dependency on on fossil fuels and i just i i i deeply admire that and i admire the fact that he knew nothing about electric cars and then went and self-educated he knew nothing about rocketry and went and self-educated and don't mistake the idea he is absolutely an engineering driving force behind that as well in that he understands how to pose the questions that make 
that have made reusable, relatively cheap orbits a, a, a practical reality. He's, he's as important to humanity's engagement with space as Werner von Braun was, who was the architect of the US rocket program. Did you see him host Saturday Night Live? You should watch that. It was excellent. He was in skits and his opening monologue I thought was great. He's very aware of who he is. And... Sure. He's a very bright man. I, I suspect he may be somewhere on the Asperger's spectrum a little bit. Not that that is any, it doesn't disable him. In many ways, I think it enables him. It gets back to your earlier point of just be yourself. And what he said in the opening monologue, he's like, I'm the first to host with Asperger's. At least I'm the first one to admit it recognizing that other people probably came before him. Okay, final question. How do you want to be remembered? This is a good question for you. I want to be remembered as an honest man. I don't think there is a higher tribute. Honesty comprises all of my my values. I want to, don't, I, I don't do bad things. I try to positively do good things. My worst day, I think, is a neutral day. And, and I want to be remembered as an honest man. There you go. I love it. I think you have been. Honest, transparent, yeah. And you got a little more runway. Well, another year or two before I hit the scrap heap and then retire from life. Yeah, hopefully. Not quite ready to give it up yet. Well, Mark, can't thank you enough for being on and being honest with your career and yourself. I really appreciate it. Nice to catch up. Thank you. Pleasure, Gary. Thank you. Thank you.